Greetings and salutations. Welcome back to the intersection of science, history, and the unexplained. My name is Erin, and I am your existential examiner and clairaudient companion for the next half-ish hour of your life. Let's see if we can figure out what in the Sam Hill is going on out there. This week, we are discussing ghost sickness, also known as Native American ghost sickness. It is an illness caused by the attachment of a ghost to your soul, bringing you to the afterlife with it. Symptoms include weakness, loss of appetite, nightmares, depression, fainting, seizures, anxiety, fear, helplessness, delusions or hallucinations, insomnia, fear of the dark, and excessive crying. And it is believed that if untreated via shamanic intervention, that it can result in death. Various things could cause the ghost to attach in this way, but some causes include confusion or loneliness on the part of the ghost or delay or failure in performing funeral rites correctly. I'm going to read an excerpt from Sarah Duple's work in the book Spirit Possession Around the World. Children are thought to be especially vulnerable to ghost sickness because it is believed that their souls are not yet fully attached to their bodies Methods of preventing ghost sickness often involve confusing spirits of the dead. Bodies may be removed from a house through means other than the door, such as a temporary hole created in the wall. This ensures that the spirit cannot return to the home the same way it left. The Kwakutl people of British Columbia would sometimes dress their children as adults during funerals so that the dead would not recognize them as easy victims for ghost sickness. If someone was afflicted with ghost sickness, it was believed that their soul was led further and further away from their body, causing their body to deteriorate. If their soul reached the land of the dead, the person would die. A shaman could heal such a person by traveling into the spirit world to find their wandering soul and return it to their body. In looking at the scientific literature, I was disappointed to see that ghost sickness hasn't actually been studied by physicians but rather has been relegated to the world of psychiatry, where it is considered a culture-bound syndrome. From the Johns Hopkins Psychiatry Guide, we have this definition of a culture-bound syndrome. The defining features of a culture-bound syndrome are its prevalence within a specific ethnocultural group and that it is a distressing deviance from the usual behavior, cognitions, or effect of that group. Though broadly described as syndromes, This is not an accurate description of all culture-bound entities. Some are indeed a syndromal clustering of symptoms, however, others are more accurately defined as local explanatory models of illness or an illness label for diverse misfortunes. So basically, it's something that indigenous people have because they don't describe their issues in the correct terminology to fall within standard Western medical diagnoses. In the literature on ghost sickness, it is primarily studied in Native American populations, particularly Navajo, Hopi, and Salish, and in the Hmong diaspora coming out of Southeast Asia. And in the literature, it is seen as strictly a type of grief disorder, wherein that grief manifests as physical symptoms and or pre-existing physical symptoms are falsely claimed to be a new phenomenon. 
Personally, I feel that Western medicine is pretty ineffective outside of emergency care because it separates mind, body, and spirit into three different cathedrals, and never the three shall meet. So of course psychologists aren't going to believe ghost sickness is anything other than grief because ghosts aren't real, heaven isn't real, and you're just a crazy person. When all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. There are a lot of illnesses, including Guillain-Barre syndrome, that used to be lumped in with polio. Just because we don't call it polio anymore doesn't mean it isn't a valid illness that existed before it had a definition. Just because indigenous people don't use clinical, atheistic language to describe their problem doesn't mean it isn't something found in Karen or Susan from the Parish or anyone else, really. As another example, the literature on ghost sickness points to the prevalence of death among the widowed within the first year as compared to a control sample. However, we have cultural beliefs in the notion of soulmates. What if there is actually a spiritual connection between two souls that can pull a person kicking and screaming into the grave? It's just so frustrating. I wish science would be open to discussing these things as if they weren't all apples and oranges. But then again, I wouldn't have a podcast if science actually opened their eyes and asked the out-of-the-box questions. I also find the idea of ghost sickness as a culture-bound syndrome extremely limiting. It completely shuts down any cross-cultural comparisons of similar complaints that may have different religious language. So let's take a brief 1,000-foot look at some of those related beliefs. The most obvious example of attempts to confuse the dead is the holiday of Halloween. The Celts believe that Samhain, near the beginning of November, and Beltane, near the beginning of May, were liminal times when the boundaries between worlds were thinnest. At these times, you wouldn't just be dealing with the dead, but also with the Fae. There are legends of people being captured on Samhain by the Fae and taken to a fairy mound or she until the next Samhain. The Celts wore costumes on Samhain to confuse both the dead and the fae, and that practice survived Christianization to become the Halloween we know today. And of course, we have already discussed in previous episodes how tangling with a fairy can be bad for one's health in Irish folklore. In Tuva, Siberia, near the border with Mongolia, they believe there are many types of entities or evil spirits that can cause disease and misfortune among the living. Among these evil spirits are the Cinezine, or doppelgangers of the dead, which resemble half a body and who can cause harm to the living, particularly if funeral rites were performed incorrectly. Another type of entity, the Aza, are incorporeal creatures who can shapeshift into many forms and live near burials, and the Aza can cause illness or death in the living. The Albus were another shapeshifting spirit, they lived in the sandy and rocky areas of the taiga ecosystem and could cause insanity. And there were others as well. One of the shamanic practices to ritually cleanse an afflicted person would be a smudging with juniper smoke and then washing with sacred water that had dry juniper and milk in it. But there were more extensive rituals as well for the more serious cases. Among the Aboriginal community in East Kimberley, Western Australia, they believe that the freshly dead, known as the Juwari, are able to choose whether or not to go through the natural cycle of becoming human again or possibly harm the living instead. This is a quote from an article by Heather McDonald from the University of Sydney. 
In East Kimberley, black is the color of life and white the color of death. Spirits who appear as white dogs are understood to be the new Juwari whose kin ties are so strong that they may attempt to take the living kin with them, or estranged spirits who become just like a bushranger. Children whose attachment to the human world is less secure than that of their elders are vulnerable to capture by new or estranged Juwari. New Juwari have to learn to be spirits of the dead, just as spirit babies have to learn to be human. Both look back to their previous existence with nostalgia, and in this liminal period, move back and forth between human and spirit worlds. When spirits appear as white dogs, the living encourage them to accept their status as spirits of the dead and take on their responsibilities to the living. So even though the Aborigines have a completely different cosmology and religion where there is reincarnation instead of a one-way ticket to the realm of the dead, we still have a tradition of the dead being able to harm the living, as well as the idea that children are most vulnerable. And a bushranger is an Australian term for an escaped convict or thief who hides in the bush for security. So these spirits are seen as escaping the natural cycle of life and hiding in the bush between episodes of harming the living. And then, of course, we have the Strigoi in Romania that have influenced the vampire myths of Hollywood. Strigoi are considered poltergeists, and while there can be some living Strigoi, which are more akin to witches, the dead Strigoi are the dangerous ones. Their soul rises from the grave at night and goes to their family members, where they can even survive on the life force of the living by drinking their blood. Solutions to Strigoi are the ones you think of for vampires in Hollywood, namely a wooden stake through the heart. Babies with white locks of hair and pale blue eyes are said to be sure to become Strigoi when they die, so it's best to stake them after their death before any trouble can be had. And then for the Catholic perspective, I'll defer to Father Chad Ripperger. He's probably the most famous Catholic exorcist at this point. He's written a ton of books and done the whole Catholic show circuit. I have a huge respect for him and his work. And he says that yes, typically they are dealing with demons, rarely in full possession, but usually in varying levels of influence and attachment. And those demons can manifest in a house and move things around or could make a person ill but he has seen where souls in purgatory can be tied either to the place that they lived or the place where they committed the sins for which they are in purgatory to the point where they can physically manifest, but they typically don't interact with humans. This would be what the paranormal investigation crowd calls a residual haunting. In Father Ripperger's experience, those type of ghosts can be eliminated by the exorcist when the exorcist says a mass in the home as a plenary indulgence for the sins of the ghost, which allows the soul to be released from purgatory and cross the bridge into heaven. Now, personally, I can see how this explanation of negative entities being able to create illness and misfortune would help solve some problems we have in our current worldview. The first of these problems is the notion of suffering within the context of Christianity. My personal upbringing and belief system falls under the umbrella of Christianity and its many denominations, so that's the religion I am most familiar with, though I'm sure other belief systems probably have similar issues. 
Within Christianity, the biggest problem is the question of suffering. How can a benevolent and all-powerful God allow such suffering in the world? It's an important question that led renowned biblical scholar Bart Ehrman to leave the faith, and it's partially what led Kupstanika from the Memphis Rap Sigils episode to Satanism. So often, we are told by faith leaders that if you love God, all things work out. But we all have seen really good and faithful people suffer for no clear reason. The explanation of negative entities could be the answer. If there truly is a spiritual war going on, you could justify it as God winning the war, but not the battle. And interestingly, I have some personal experience with a friend in college who was training to become a pastor, and it was when he began his training that he began experiencing physical manifestations of a poltergeist spirit or demon within his home. Likewise, medicine has the problem of idiopathic illness or illness without a cause. We can treat the symptoms, but how do you provide the correct answer without knowing the question? You cannot cure an illness without understanding the true cause, and medical research is slowly providing a better understanding of the various causes of illness, but they will probably never find the causes to every illness because they lack the proper framework to do so. This faulty framework isn't limited to physical illness either. Schizophrenia is a scary word for a scary condition. Who wants voices in their head telling them to hurt themselves or someone else? Scientists have studied the difference between schizophrenics and clairaudient mediums, people who receive auditory psychic messages, typically through telepathic thought similar to the voices in schizophrenia. Those studies found essentially no difference other than schizophrenics heard negative voices and could not control whether or not they were hearing things, while the clairaudient mediums heard positive voices and were able to turn the voices on and off more like a phone conversation. Of course, scientists and psychiatrists think the clairaudients are also crazy, but harmless and thus not in need of treatment. But what if schizophrenia is the misunderstood condition? Dr. Jerry Marzinski is a retired psychological professional who spent over three decades in the field working with thousands of schizophrenics, including some at the notorious Central State Hospital in my home state of Georgia, and he has a very different take on the illness. In his experience, patients aren't experiencing random negative hallucinations. They're all experiencing almost identical voices that are very clearly a separate entity with separate intentions and desires from that of the patient. And the so-called thoughts coming from those voices are almost all lies about the patient and the patient's surroundings. Like an abusive partner, the voices will isolate the patient from friends and family with false information and will insult the patient regularly. The voices will then instruct the patient to behave in self-destructive behavior. Dr. Marzinski also noticed that the schizophrenic patients were the only patients who chose to remain in the psychiatric ward instead of going to church services where free cake and ice cream were offered. When asked, the patients said their voices grew louder and angrier at just the thought of attending church, and if they actually went, the voices grew so loud and so intense that it was unbearable, and they had to leave the service. The same was reported when they attempted to read the Bible, in particular Psalm 23, which of course is, the Lord is my shepherd. 
When Dr. Marasinski began working in the prison system, he found that schizophrenic inmates said their voices had told them which houses to break into, when the occupants were up, where to find the valuables in the home, and when the police were about to show up. He also found that patients had to want the voices to be gone in order to see any positive results. And the voices had the ability to drain energy from the patient to the point that some patients could not even get out of bed. Not only that, he describes one incident with a schizophrenic patient where the voices became so angry that it caused a physical manifestation in the room that crackled like lightning. Psychiatry as a field fails to help these people because they have separated mind, body, and spirit, and because they are incestuously intertwined with the pharmaceutical industry. But it's pretty clear to me that these people are suffering from the attachment of negative entities that vampirically feed on the negative emotions of the host. The list of symptoms is straight out of an exorcism manual. Another thing Marzinski notes is that the voices always speak in plural and refer to themselves as we, and that children who are abused are more likely to develop these voices. That immediately brings to my mind dissociative identity disorder, formerly known as multiple personality disorder. Aside from all of the trenders on TikTok who are faking the condition for attention, if the people who actually have DID are dissociating from themselves, who or what is coming in to replace the host? The other question is how many mental and physical illnesses could be linked to lower grade attachments? Emanuel Swedenborg, the 18th century Swedish scientist turned mystic and father of spiritualism, said that none of our thoughts come from ourselves. So are people suffering from anxiety or depression dealing with negative entity attachment? What about people with chronic fatigue syndrome that seem to have the energy drained from their bodies for no reason? Are the elites intentionally generating negative emotions through the fear porn they call the news in order to feed these negative entities? All great questions that the scientific cathedral is doing their best to avoid answering. If we're going to talk about what ghosts can or cannot do, though, I have to go to the source. Most of you probably don't know that I am somewhat of a clairaudient medium myself. I don't really talk about it on the podcast because it isn't all that relevant to most of the episodes, but I have a few ghosties that follow me around and a few others that stay at our house. Most of my conversations are with my main spirit guide, I suppose you could say. Her name is Alice, and it is my belief that in life, she was Alice Young, the first woman ever hung in America for witchcraft and my 10th great-grandmother. I say belief because obviously I can't prove any of this. For all I know, she's a demon named Frank, and I'm being very much catfished from beyond. Yes, I take many precautions as far as protecting my home and especially my family, but there is absolutely an element of faith in all of this, just as there is with mainstream psychiatry, I might add. Take everything from here with grains of salt, but this is what Alice had to say when I asked her specifically about ghost sickness. And I'll clarify that this is her thoughts and my words, this is not a quote. The idea of ghost sickness as a ghost deliberately attaching to another soul is not quite accurate. There are some ghosts who can intentionally hurt other humans, but it is rare and generally unrelated to the ghost sickness described. These would be ghosts who have been consumed by their anger to the point that they lose their souls to it. 
At first, they focus the anger on the people they feel may have wronged them, or perhaps people who remind them of those that wronged them. But as they become consumed by the anger, the delineation between the so-called guilty and the innocent falls away. Most of us have seen this behavior even among the living, so it's no surprise that it could occur among the dead. And I would say that most paranormal investigators have probably tangled with a spirit like this. There are some schools of thought that souls like this can even choose to become demons, but I find demon to be too loaded of a word, so I don't hold to this view specifically. I would describe them as a shell of a soul that lost their humanity to their anger. Moving on, Alice says that human souls have spiritual attachments to other souls. Most often, this would be family, so spouses, kids, parents, etc. When a soul passes through the veil or portal, it tugs at those attached souls like a magnet. The further the soul moves through the portal, the less energy there is behind that tug. In some cultures, the threat of ghost sickness is only within the first two years after a person's death, so that would certainly seem to tie into that notion. For a human to remain healthy in this dimension, the soul has to be firmly grounded in the body, fully integrated mind, body, and spirit. When the soul of the living is tugged closer to the death portal, it can cause disease or dis-ease in the body. This would be the more standard manifestations of grief, and it's generally a temporary condition, though some do fall victim. As I mentioned earlier, there is a higher rate of death among the widowed within the first year as compared to the rest of the population. Death and the jump through the portal is supposed to be quick, but sometimes a soul isn't so lucky. The process can be delayed in some instances, and this would be by the things that we typically think about when we are talking about why a person stays a ghost. They don't know they're dead, or there are some unresolved issues, or something like that. It is my belief that because the spiritual attachment works both ways, that the unresolved issues can also work both ways. As in, if you don't let your loved one go, you can also hold them back from jumping the portal. Eventually, the portal closes, whether the soul is on the other side or not. But if that portal stays open because a person doesn't cross quickly, other entities can leak out. There was a Cree funerary prayer in one of the papers I read that I think hints to other entities being responsible. Go, go straight ahead. Do not take anyone with you. Do not look back. When you reach your destination, talk for us. Tell them not to trouble us or not to come here and take anyone else away. There are negative vampiric entities on the other side, on the pathway between our dimension and heaven, for lack of a better word that relish the opportunity to feed on humans. And it is these entities that cause the ghost sickness. They can attach to you like a leech on your life force. And they would attack the souls they find first, which would generally be family because those souls have been tucked closer to the portal that the entities are leaking out of. As for why children are considered bigger targets, Alice said, why do humans eat veal? which is a disgusting thought, but these entities see children as more juicy and tender. Their innocence makes them a yummier target. And they're also more vulnerable because they are naturally closer to the spirit realm through their daily use of imagination and the whole not being crushed under the responsibility and expectations of adulthood thing. 
As for why iron is said to protect from certain types of attachment, Alice said it is only found in this dimension, so it grounds you into this reality. The key to preventing an attachment is to stay fully grounded into this dimension. That's one reason why alcoholics and drug addicts are more vulnerable to negative entity attachments and why there is a very real meth to schizophrenia pipeline. The more time you spend with your body, mind, and spirit not integrated with one another, the more vulnerable you are to an attachment. Putting my conspiratorial hat on, I might question why the field of medicine is pumping people full of happy drugs that keep us from being fully integrated instead of dealing with the actual underlying issues, but that is another topic for another day. I don't have time to fully discuss my feelings towards the pharmaceutical industry overlords. And finally, I want to provide a caution to y'all. When you rip a soul back through the portal to communicate with them, you can, and often do, bring negative entity leeches through the portal with them. This is the main reason I do not actually work as a medium performing seances or attempting to contact specific spirits, but you don't have to perform the full ritual seance to get this effect. It can be as simple as asking a specific spirit to manifest and communicate during a paranormal investigation, which many paranormal investigators do quite frequently. So my suggestion is that you can ask if any spirits are present and ask if they would like to come forward and communicate of their own volition. But I would strongly caution against attempting to contact specific spirits or bullying any spirit into communicating with you. Be careful out there, y'all. Never forget that we are dipping our toes into realms that we can never fully understand in this lifetime. And be extremely skeptical of spirits that present as children. Children have that innocence and closeness to the portal that allow them to cross easily. It is extremely rare that a child would actually become a ghost by failing to cross the portal. But there are many negative entities that can and will present as children in order to trick you into allowing them access to your soul. That is going to wrap it up for this week's episode. Take a gander at the show notes to find the list of resources I used, as well as all of the places that you can find me. You can also go to beacons.ai slash whatsamhill to get a free sticker and show your support for the show. Until next time, may you never stop asking, what in the Sam Hill? 